This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. This morning we're going to be talking about the apostles and the fact that they really were a group of men that lived, that were very close followers of Jesus. And you might ask yourself the question, why are we going to talk about the apostles? Uh, surely there's nobody that doubts their existence. And I would imagine if you go back about 200 years or so, you're going to find that's very much true. Nobody questioned whether or not the apostles uh, really existed. Uh, even 100 years ago, you're going to find very few questions about that. But today, uh, there's quite a few people that will say they never did uh, exist at all. Give you a couple of quotes as we get started here. Tom Bissell uh, wrote a book called Apostle Travels Among the Tombs of the Twelve. And uh, this was uh, Mr. Bissell quoted in a National Geographic article where he made this statement. A couple, a couple of the names recorded in the New Testament are probably actual people. There was probably a Peter and John, definitely a James, the brother of Jesus, and probably a Thomas. Beyond that, there's nothing, nothing historical that verifies their existence other than the Gospels themselves. And so he closes with this, so I think there's a mixture of fact and fiction. I'm just going to tell you something, brothers and sisters. If there's a mixture of fact and fiction in the Holy Scriptures, then we've got a problem. We've got a very serious problem if there's a mixture of fact and fiction. He makes this statement that there's nothing historical that verifies their existence other than the Gospels themselves. But as he studied history, as he went to these tombs, as he, as he dug into the evidence, he would at least be man enough to admit that there was a probability that these guys really existed, a few of them at least. Kenneth Humphreys is uh, what we would call a mythicist. He believes everything uh, in the Bible is a myth, is made up, is fictitious. He runs a YouTube channel, and in one of his uh, debates... Uh, with another individual, he makes this statement. The twelve disciples are as fictitious as their master. Invented to legitimize the claims of the early church. And so these are just a sample of what's floating out there. And I could spend hours reading people that, that just don't believe they ever existed at all. That they're made up completely. That somebody in the early church felt it necessary to surround Jesus with this group of 12 apostles to legitimize the, the growth of the early church in some form or fashion. That's what a lot of people think. And so therefore we've been working this verse into all these studies in Jude and verse number 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. We're going to contend for the faith, continue to contend for the faith, continue to combat these claims that the apostles never existed. I find it interesting that Jude would go on to say in verse number 17, But beloved, remember the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said the apostles themselves said this, that they told you that, in there, that there would be mockers in the last time. That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with mockers. Ever since Jesus died on the cross, 
there have been mockers in the last times. And I'm not saying that to tell you we're, we're in the end times altogether. We don't know. But since the time of Jesus, we've lived in the last days, in the last times. And there have been mockers. And they mock Jesus. And they mock his apostles and brothers and sisters. They'll mock you today. They'll mock you today for following after Christ. So let's take a look. Let's contend for the faith. Who were the apostles? And I'm not going to go into great detail about this. A couple weeks ago on a Wednesday night, we kind of went through them one by one and looked at who the apostles were. But briefly, I want to introduce you to them and, and what the Bible says about them. The biblical account of who the apostles were we can find in Luke chapter 6 and verse number 13. And when it was day, he called to him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Now all apostles are disciples, not all disciples are apostles. A disciple is just a follower, a follower of Jesus. An apostle carries with it the meaning of being a messenger with some amount of appointed authority. And so they had authority beyond what just a normal disciple would have and we'll talk about that a little bit as we go along there are four lists in the new testament uh, that list them out by name that tell us who they were now some of these men they only appear in this list and we don't see them again we don't really know any details about them or their life some of these men we know a great deal about but it's important to note that matthew and in the book of mark and then luke twice once in the book of Ac once in the book of luke and once in the book of acts details who these men were and he also records for us the replacement of judas iscariot with Matthias. And so he knew who these men were, and he detailed it out for us to, to read and to notice. <clears throat> I want to add a couple to that. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 19, Paul says, But other of the apostles saw I none save James, the Lord's brother. And so evidently, even beyond these twelve, there were a few other men that were called apostles. We don't know the details of how they came into that office or how they were appointed to that. But we know that Paul recognized James, the Lord's brother, who was not one of the other two Jameses that were members of the apostles. He was another man, a different man. He was the Lord's brother, and he's noted. And you'll remember that Tom Bissell said, definitely, this was a real man. And so we want to notice him and note some of that evidence that supports that, that he definitely uh, did live and was, was real just like the rest of the apostles. And then, of course, in Acts chapter 14 and 14, it says, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard, uh, heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people crying out. So we've got Paul and we've got Barnabas. Again, Barnabas is mentioned several times in scriptures. Beyond that, we don't know much about him. But we certainly know a bunch about Paul. And there's really nobody Nobody that's going to debate whether or not Paul was, was a real individual that lived, that wrote, uh, and, and supported Christianity in the early days of the church. So I want to note them among the apostles. They were called apostles, not just by themselves, but by other uh, individuals as well. That's all I'm going to say about the, the biblical record of the apostles. We talked again, if you want to go back and listen to that sermon, you can listen to more about what uh, the Bible records about the apostles. But I want to move right into the historical evidence. Because Mr. Bissell made the claim that there's nothing historical that would support their existence outside of the scriptures. But I'm here to tell you that that's just not true. It's just not true. I've got a list of names up here, and this is not comprehensive. 
There's many, many more than this. But I got this list up here with the dates in which they recorded. You'll notice some of these men would have been contemporaries with the apostles. They would have lived along the same times as they lived. Others of them are much later in history. But even up to just the, the fourth century, uh, we've got many people that were recording and talking about the apostles and what they did. And so rather than reading through every quote that we could read, and we could take hours and hours just reading quote after quote from these men, I want to apply a, a method that, that I noticed a, a man named Dr. Sean McDowell uh, applied. He wrote a book called The Fate of the Apostles. Uh, he also did his doctoral research over the martyrdoms of the apostles and whether or not those were really true historical accounts. And so in his book, he applies four different things uh, to the historical uh, accuracy of the apostles to see if they really were who they said they were, uh, who the Bible says they were, and uh, whether or not they really lived and did the things uh, that, that uh, they suggested. And so these are the four things that he applies. Number one, he said there was multiple attestation. This is something that historians will apply when they're looking to see if something's really historically accurate. Are there multiple sources that record this? Are there multiple places we can look and we get the same story? And that's very much the case with the apostles. That's very much the case with Jesus. That's very much the case with, with all these things that we have talked about in this series. Uh, but we've got recorded for us, as I said, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John doesn't mention them uh, all together in one place, but he mentions the 12. He mentions names of the, of the 12, not just all together in one place. Paul mentions the 12 in Corinthians. Paul mentions other apostles. And then we go down to what we would call the anti-Nicene writers. And that doesn't mean anti. That just means these were writers before the council of Nicaea. And the, they record for us. I list just a few here, but there are many, many more. That tell us about the twelve. They mention them uh, as a group. Saying the twelve did this or the twelve did that. They mention them as individuals. Peter, James, John, so on and so forth. And so we've got all these, these multiple writers and authors telling us that they existed. Very, very early on. We don't have to go very far uh, in history. They weren't made up hundreds of years later. They knew them as they existed in that time. The second thing that we see uh, that he applied, that Dr. McDowell applied, was this criterion of embarrassment. And he makes the statement that when something is embarrassing to the writer or the author, and they go ahead and include that, that would be embarrassing to them, it is more likely than not true. Because if you're writing a book, you're not going to make up stuff that makes you look bad if it's not true, you would have no reason to include that. And so we have in the New Testament, obviously, the betrayal by Judas. We have the doubting of Thomas. We have Peter denying Jesus. And we have every one of those apostles forsaking him and leaving him at some point in time. Those facts are embarrassing. Those facts are, are really, truly embarrassing to, to that group, the apostles, because they didn't believe at first. They had their doubts at first. And we pick on old Thomas quite a bit, but let's be honest, every single one of them had some doubts because when they came and arrested Jesus, that group forsook him and fled. They all ran off. And that's embarrassing. But it's all recorded for us. It's 
all talked about. Why? Because they weren't making it up. It really happened. And they wanted us to know years later that maybe sometimes in the, in the very hardest struggles that you're going through, you may have some doubts, but you can always come back to Jesus. Don't doubt him. Don't doubt him. The next one is the lack of flowery details. And, and this one, uh, think back to, to the Kenneth Humphreys that we quoted earlier on. One of his main arguments in that debate was that he said, if indeed these apostles uh, existed, they should be 12 of the most famous people in history. He said, we're told they were handpicked by Jesus to witness his wondrous deeds, to learn his sublime teachings, and to take the good news of the kingdom to the ends of the earth, which makes it all the more surprising that we know next to nothing about them. We can't even be sure of their names. It should be apparent that if the twelve were actual historical figures with such an important role in the foundation and growth of the church, it would be impossible to have such wild confusion over the basic question of whom they really were. When you read that, on the surface, it seems to make just a little bit of sense. You think, why don't we know more about some of these guys? Why don't we know more about uh, those that are just mentioned in the list of the apostles? We really just don't know anything else about them. And so that was his point. They should be famous. But here's the, here's the story. The apostles were just men. They were just Christians. And you think about the Christian faith and what we're trying to learn and what we're trying to teach. It's a faith of love. It's a faith of humility. It's a faith of putting your brothers and sisters first and their needs first. It's a faith of being a servant. A faith of being a servant. And that's exactly what these men were. They were servants. They were humble men that had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus and believed his teachings with all their heart. And they went about to build churches and establish churches not to put themselves up on a pedestal. You think about what Paul wrote. When the Corinthians started to boost him up and put him on a pedestal, he said, no, no, no. He said, you're not baptized in my name. He said, I'm not your savior and neither is Peter and neither is Apollos. It's Christ. Follow after Christ. Don't build us up. We're just men. And that's the faith that they taught. And so really and truthfully, if they would have been made up, if they would have been fictitious, we would have fabricated some outstanding stories about them. And in fact, you can read in some of the apocryphal writings where people tried to do that, where they tried to build them up and, and, and wrote these stories that can be proved to be fictitious. Uh, and, and tried to build them up, and that's just not who they were. They were humble men who only cared about spreading the gospel. And finally, there's a, a man named Richard Bachman who did onomastic studies of early names or the names of people in the, in the area of Palestine in the first century. And probably this by itself is not very compelling evidence, but when you couple it with everything else we've been talking about, I think it has merit. And these onomastic studies were just studies of names. What, what did people name their kids in first century Palestine? And what he found was there was a, a very small number of very popular names. We talked about the Jameses. There's just so many Jameses in the early uh, days of the church. Easy to get them confused because it was a popular name. You've got many, many uh, people that were named this small number of popular names... And then you've got a large number of rare ones. 
And if the tradition of the 12 were reliable, a combination of these names should appear in the list, and it matches almost perfectly. It's just surprising how well it matches statistically the names that were rare and the names that were common, and then we pick this list of 12 people, and we've got a statistical match for rare and, and uh, common names. And so that's what we find. If we were going to make up a list of people, and if the early church was going to make up a list of people, it would almost certainly be skewed one way or the other. They would have picked more rare names than they should have picked, or they would have picked more common names than they should have picked. It wouldn't match up with the populace exactly like it matches up. So those are some, some uh, details of the historical evidence. And like I said, I encourage you, in the public domain, you can find the anti-Nicene writings. Uh, and, and I encourage you to download those. They're free. You can download them. You can read them. Not saying they're scripture. They're not scripture at all. But they're very interesting. And, and a lot of it is going to be supportive uh, of what we talked about, especially the existence of these apostles. Let's look for a brief moment at just some archaeological evidence. And again, there's a lot of this stuff out there. Some of it uh, seems to be much more accurate than others. And so I want to include for you some things that, that I believe after studying this and researching it and, and uh, looking at it seems to be very, very much uh, reliable. We talked about Eusebius a, a little bit. Eusebius uh, was a writer uh, in about the 4th century, late 3rd, early 4th century. Uh, he wrote a history of the church from Christ to Constantine. That was the name of the book that he wrote. And so this is very early on as well. And he quotes a man in his writings named uh, Caius. And he says that Caius was an elder or bishop at the church of Rome. And he says that what he, uh, he made this statement. But I can point out the trophies of the apostles. For if you will go to the Vatican or to the Ostian Way, you will find the trophies of those that founded this church. The tr word trophy there, or tropia, uh, most scholars uh, agree that it means a monument to victory and was a reference of either where Peter and Paul were buried or perhaps where they were actually martyred, uh, where their actual death took place. And so Caius is saying, I can show you where it is. We can walk down there and we can look at it. And this is late third century. And so just to give you some perspective, we can go point out where George Washington's buried. We can go to, we can go to Martha's Vineyard and we can point it out and we can say, he's, he's in that tomb. I can point to it. And that would be the same thing as, as the distance between uh, here where we're reading about Eusebius. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. It's very much within the realm of possibility and likelihood uh, that they knew where it was. Uh, Eusebius also states this account of Peter and Paul is substantiated by the fact that their names are preserved in the cemeteries of that place to the present day. He said that their names are in the cemeteries. We know where they're buried. There's, there was not any question about that. And so it's interesting, note uh, some things here. First of all, the Vatican, what we know as the Vatican or the Vatican City, we very closely associate with Catholicism. It's the smallest country in the world. It's the home or the center of the Catholic Church. But it was once just one or, or part of one of 14 regions that were established by uh, Caesar Augustus. And it was just one of the regions of Rome. It was called, that, that part of the, the place was called Vatican. And so topographically it wasn't good for much it, it wasn't a center point of military operations or anything like that 
it just wasn't a very good piece of property, a very good piece of land. And so what did it become? It became their burial ground. They just started burying people out there. Josh talked about the number of people that they crucified, the number of people that they, that they killed and put to death, and they needed a place to get rid of them and bury them, and so that's what they started doing. From the Tiber River to what is today called St. Peter's Basilica was just a massive graveyard. And they buried lots and lots of people out there. In the 4th century, the Emperor Constantine, uh, who was a Christian sympathizer and later a convert to Christianity, decided that he wanted to build something uh, to, to remember Peter, to commemorate Peter. And so where did he go to do that? He went to what's now the Vatican, what's now St. Peter's Basilica. And there was a lot of controversy on why he would choose that location. Number one, they had to move one million cubic feet of dirt. And they didn't have big caterpillars and things like that in those days. They had to move a million cubic feet of earth in order to level that out and build that uh, basilica. The second thing was they desecrated many, many graves in order to do that. And built right on top of a graveyard. Now why did he choose that location? Why did he do that? Most scholars believe that he selected it because he knew that's where Peter's trophy was. Caius had said, we can point out the trophy. Eusebius said, we can go. We know where Peter and Paul are buried. And Constantine went to that location and he began to build on that what's now uh, called the Vatican or Vatican City, St. Peter's Basilica. Excavations began to take place underneath that basilica in the 1940s. And uh, because there was a pope that wanted to be buried underneath that basilica. And so they began to look for a place and do some excavations there. And as they did that, uh, they came across uh, an area of underneath uh, the basilica there uh, where they could see there was definitely a tomb. And uh, quite a few tombs, actually, a, a Roman uh, cemetery was, was found and they could see where Christians were buried they could see where pagans that had converted to Christianity were buried they could tell all this by the types of burials that they had nonetheless you can see here that as they, they did that they found all this stuff and then down here they found what they are pretty certain was Peter's original tomb now Christians in those early days and in the middle ages got very funny about relics and if they could get a bone from what they thought was an apostle and take off with it, they thought they had something great. And so I'm not going to sit here and tell you the bones of Peter are down there like the Catholic Church would proclaim to tell you. But there's very, very strong evidence that this is where Peter was indeed buried. Here's a couple pictures from that. This one, they don't show up great, but this one on this side is just peering up into that area where you're going to see those Christian burial grounds. And then this right here is the column that was the trophy that Caius referred to. This is the trophy marking the area. That was either number one, the, mart the place where Peter was martyred, or number two, the place in which he was buried. The Apostle Paul also buried, he said, as, it, as the Ostian Way. I can show you his trophy in the Ostian Way. Uh, in uh, uh, Excavations were... Conducted in what they call now uh, the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls. So it was some distance away from where uh, Peter's tomb was. Uh, they found a sarcophagus that was buried beneath a main altar in a marble tombstone bearing the Latin words, 
which in English would, would be translated Apostle Paul Martyr. Uh, so this basilica rises on what uh, tradition would say is the place where uh, Paul was either buried or martyred. And uh, I think it's important to note that even before these discoveries, way back in 1915, uh, a Professor H. Leitzman collected and analyzed the body of literature and archaeological evidence relating to the tombs of Peter and Paul and came to the conclusion that the Roman tradition uh, which venerates Peter's grave at the Vatican and that of Paul and the Ostian Way is historically sound and that no serious objection can be raised against it. So their burial places, as quoted by Eusebius and Caius, uh, and the location that they are today is very, very much sound. Their inscriptions uh, in Peter's uh, tomb and in Paul's tomb as well, indicating this indeed is where they were buried. The next piece of archaeological evidence I want to look at briefly is the James Ossuary. And the Ossuary is a limestone bone box. Uh, the tradition of, of, uh, in Judea in the first century and really only from just a few years around the first century was that you would be, after you died, you'd be laid in a tomb. Once your flesh decayed and rotted away a little bit, your bones would be gathered up and you'd be put in a, in a little limestone bone box like this. Interesting thing about this one uh, is when they found it, and this was not found in official archaeological dig. So we need to make note of that. There's a fair amount of controversy that surrounds this. Uh, but the, the uh, inscription bears the words, James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. Now people immediately began to say that James, the son of Joseph, is authentic in its inscription, but that brother of Jesus was added because they just didn't put brother uh, of a person on the bone box most time. It was going to have the name and the, and the father. Of course, Jesus being as significant he was, it's very likely that they would have wanted that on there. James would have wanted that on there. But nonetheless, it was put through a series of tests to see if that part of the inscription was authentic. And uh, they looked at different kinds of bacteria. They looked at organic matter down in the creases of these uh, words. And they came to the conclusion that it is authentic, that there's no way it could have been added in recent times, that too much time has to pass for those organisms to grow and that, that fungi to grow down in those cracks of that crevice. So this is authentic. You can make up your mind whether you think that is the James, the brother of Jesus, or whether you don't think so. Uh, James was a common name. Joseph was a common name. But to have a man that was James, the, the son of Joseph and the brother of Jesus, not so common. So those are a few of the archaeological finds. But we don't have to stop with just identifying who these people were. We can go up further and we can identify through history and archaeology that the mission that they wished to accomplish was also true. Not just that they were real, but that their mission was real, that their work was real. And so let's look at that for just a minute. Back to the biblical account, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, 
uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. And, Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. So their mission was, as stated by Jesus, go and teach all nations. Go and baptize them. And then teach them to observe the things that I have commanded you. So teach them the gospel, baptize them, and then teach them everything that they need to know. We live by this same commission today. This is our mission just like it was their mission. Well, they go on to say, and we're going to see this word witness several times. Luke chapter 24 and verse 47 to 48. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you're witnesses of these things. Jesus said, you've seen it. You saw it happen. You've witnessed it. And not only did they witness all the teachings of Jesus, they witnessed his resurrection. They saw a man live again that had been dead. And that changed them. That changed their attitude. They went from fearful, uh, running off chickens to we're going to stand up for this man and we're going to preach his word and we're going to preach his gospel and we don't care if we die. It doesn't matter to us if we're killed for, for this. We're going to do it 100%. Acts chapter 4 and verse 33, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. With great power they began to give that witness. Can you imagine Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost and preaching that message? Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved among you by signs and miracles and wonders, which God did by him in the midst of you. That's the message they began to preach, a message of power of the resurrected Savior. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost part of the earth. These men were going to spread out from Jerusalem, and they were going to go to the entire known world at that time, and they were going to spread the message of Jesus Christ. You'll be witnesses of me. You've seen that word over and over. That was their job. They were witnesses. They saw it happen and they proclaimed it to everybody that they came in contact with. But that name witness has even deeper meaning. Let's look at the Greek meaning of that word witness. Martus. Those who after his example have proved the strength and genuineness of their faith in Christ by undergoing a violent death. Jesus told them that they were going to go die for him. That's what being a witness meant to the apostles. That they were going to go to the death. That they were going to proclaim Jesus to the death. We studied about that last, uh, a couple weeks ago on a Wednesday. How they died. Every one of them except John went to the death. They went to the death. Confessing him along the way. Well, Does the historical narrative support that? Remember the debates, remember the questions. We don't know much about these guys is what they say. Clement, one of those writers of the anti-Nicene era, he would have been a contemporary with the, the apostles. His writing in the late first century, he was an elder at the church of Rome. Along with the group of presbyters or the group of elders, they wrote a letter to Corinth. And that letter is preserved. And he says this in that letter. Having therefore received their orders and being fully assured by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and established in the word of God with full assurance of the Holy Ghost, they went forth 
proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand and thus preaching through the countries and cities. And so Clement himself observed them doing that. He watched as they spread out. He watched as they came to Corinth. He watched as they went to other areas. He watched as they came to Rome and proclaimed the gospel. From Jerusalem they spread out. They went all over. In the first apology of Justin Martyr, chapter 39, verses 2 and 3, Justin wrote in the middle part of the second century, he says this, For from Jerusalem there went out into the world men, twelve in number, and these illiterate and of no ability in speaking, but by the power of God they proclaimed to every race of man that they were sent by Christ to teach all the world of God. Eusebius in his Ecclesiastical History, book, chapter, uh, book 3, chapter 1, makes the following statement. Meanwhile, the holy apostles and disciples of our Savior were dispersed throughout the world. Parthia, according to tradition, was allotted to Thomas as the field of his labor. Scythia to Andrew and Asia to John, who after he had lived some time there, died at Ephesus. Peter appears to have preached in Pontus, Galatia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, and Asia to the Jews of the dispersion. And at last, having come to Rome, he was crucified head downwards, for he had requested that he might suffer this way. What do we need to say concerning Paul, who preached the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem to Illyricum and afterwards suffered martyrdom in Rome under Nero? So he tells us where they went, what they did. This was passed down through history and men recorded where the apostles went in their field of labor. We, we know where they went. We don't have to wonder. People can't look and say we know nothing about these men from history. The history books tell us what they did. The history books tell us where they went. What about their suffering? This uh, Eusebius talks about the suffering of Peter and Paul, uh, that they would suffer martyrdom. Clement goes on to say, Uh, In chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, But to stop giving ancient examples, let us come to those who became athletic contenders in quite recent times. We should consider the noble examples of our own generation. Because of jealousy and envy, the greatest and most upright pillars were persecuted. And they struggled in the contest even to death. We should set before our eyes the good apostles. There is Peter who because of unjust jealousy bore up under hardships. Not just once or twice but many times. And having thus borne his witness he went to the place of glory that he deserved. And he goes on and on to tell us about the apostles and how they suffered. But you get the point. We got it in history. It's recorded for us. And yes we believe the New Testament above all. And we don't need anything else to prove to us that these apostles existed, that their work and their ministry was true. But we've got it. If we want it, we've got it. And if somebody needs it to to believe it, then here it is in the history books. Mike Aquila and Rodney Stark in an article called Christianity in Rome made this statement, and, and Josh alluded to this in other sources as well. In the first century, in the first Christian centuries, there was an astonishing growth rate of 40% per decade. If you don't believe anything else, and you want to cast all these historical claims and everything else to the side, you can't argue with this fact. That in the early days, in the early centuries, in the, 
in the late 1st, in the 2nd century, the 3rd century, even as they were persecuted to death, even as Nero killed Christians, even as Roman Caesar after Roman Caesar persecuted and killed Christians and put them to death, Christianity grew 40% per decade. What more proof do we need? In Acts chapter 5 and verse 34, it says, Then stood there one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among the people, and he commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. And he said, You men of Israel, take heed to yourselves. What ye intend to do is touching these men. For before these days rose up Thedius, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. And he goes on to say that there was others named Judas. And finally he comes to the conclusion that, I say to you, refrain from these men and let them alone, for if this counselor work be of men, it will come to naught. It will come to naught. There were other people who tried to raise up other religions in those days, and they came to naught. Christianity survived. It survived immense persecution. Why? Because the apostles saw the resurrected Jesus, and they proclaimed their faith over and over and over again. Brothers and sisters, we have record in history. We have record in archaeology of the truth of these facts. Just a couple other things as we begin to wrap up. Archaeological evidence of their mission. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 23, Paul says, Gaius, mine host, and of the whole church saluteth you. Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, saluteth you. And Quartus, our brother. Erastus, I want to notice Erastus here. The chamberlain of the city in Corinth. Paul writes from Corinth to Rome. And then we have this little stone in 1929, an archaeological excavation in the area near the theater in Corinth. Uh, the, uh, was, this stone was located bearing the name of Erastus and indicating that he was a public official. The inscription reads, Erastus, in return from his dialship, laid the pavement at his own expense. An adile was a person who was a manager uh, an overseer of the city in some kind of way. Uh, just like Paul said, he was the chamberlain. The chamberlain means a manager of the city. This is the guy that Paul knew that probably he converted to Christianity or someone converted to Christianity. He said this man uh, sent greetings to the church at Rome from Corinth. And now we have a stone that bears that name, dated to that time. Evidence that Paul was certainly in Corinth and that he knew those individuals. Have evidence of uh, Philip's burial place in Turkey, indicating that he did indeed go out and, and uh, spread the gospel in other areas away from Jerusalem. In late 2011, a man named Francesco D'Andrea was making a discovery in Areopolis. Uh, he found uh, uh, a place where it says outside the walls on the slope above the city, architects saw. Uh, to the uh, realization of a monumental complex that was dedicated to Philip the Apostle. Included an immense martyrium uh, formed of a square building enclosed in a dome and an octagonal hall. And so they built this monument to Philip. Uh, evidently some years after he was buried, they thought they would find his tomb there. However, they didn't find his tomb there. 
As they continued their excavations, they found another small uh, church that had been constructed there quite some time before uh, that they believe is the burial place of Peter. I put this coin up there because uh, it's a, a coin that, that uh, dates to a later time. Uh, but they found this coin, and, they, and you can see the little church on one side and then the basilica that they had constructed on the other side with Philip uh, in the middle. And so this, again, indicates that from a very early time, now I can't tell you this is where he was buried. I, I don't know that for sure. But I can tell you that from a very, very early time, that's what they believed. That's what they thought. We also have evidence of John being in Ephesus. Now, some people believe that uh, John died on the island of Patmos. That's most likely not the case. Uh, he would have been exiled to Patmos, lived there for some time, and then after the death of the Roman Caesar that uh, exiled him, he would have came back and lived out his days on Ephesus. Irenaeus, uh, an elder in, Le- in Lyon uh, in around 180 A.D., says that John wrote his gospel and his letters at Ephesus. Now, it's important to notice that this Irenaeus studied with a man named Polycarp. And Polycarp himself said that he knew John personally. So in his writings, he records that he studied with John, that he knew John. And then Irenaeus, in turn, studies with Polycarp. So to give you some perspective on that, that's like dad studying with Landry and telling him that he knows where Pop Dukes is buried. And they go out and look at that place. That's the time frame. It's not very long it's not out of the realm of possibility and certainly he says that he uh, John um, let me just read an excerpt there in Arrhenius against heresies book 1 chapter 3 verse 4 it says but Polycarp also was not only instructed by the apostles and conversed with many who had seen Christ but was also by apostles in Asia appointed bishop of the church in Smyrna so he believes that Uh, He was appointed as an elder by the apostles themselves. Here's a picture of that area today. Uh, It's interesting that there's really not been any debate through the years other than very early on. And so during the third century, there were two different sites in Ephesus that claimed the honor of being the burial site of John. This is very early on, third century. One eventually achieved official recognition, and in the 4th century, uh, it was turned into a shrine. Then in the 6th century, uh, Justinian constructed a basilica over that site. And so from then on, there's been something standing there. Today, this is what it looks like. Uh, But it's never really been debated that one of those two sites was certainly the burial site of John and Ephesus. So these men did spread out. They did disperse. There's no question about it. Just a couple verses as we close, and Zane will cover this in much more detail, but I want you to get some take-home points. Why are we talking about the apostles? Well, number one, we're contending for the faith. People don't believe in them. People don't know they existed. We're going to contend by the faith. But most importantly, in Acts 2 and verse 42, it says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. In Acts 16 and verse 42, In 16 verse 4 it says, And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders. These apostles had a great amount of authority in the early church. And what we read and what we do and how we act is largely based on their writings. 
We believe that Jesus put them in perfect remembrance and that they recorded for us what we need to know in order to be Christians all these uh, years and years and years later. We have what we need because Jesus appointed them, gave them authority, and they confirmed it. If they weren't real, everything we know is based on a hoax. If they weren't truly real, then we've been wasting our time for years and years and years. But the fact is they were real. The New Testament tells us they were real. History confirms it. Archaeology confirms it. We could study many, many more things and many, many more evidences. Our faith is based on truth. Be confident. Your faith is based on truth. All these things, all these witnesses, all this evidence supports the fact that we are following the one true God, that we are saved by Christ Jesus, his Savior, and that we have recorded for us everything we need to know to be faithful Christians now and into the future. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.